Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello everyone and welcome back to the History of England, episode 305, The Frog Prince. Firstly, if you will forgive me, some messages. Firstly, to Scott, who got in touch with me recently. Scott, very lovely to hear from you and the very best of luck. Secondly, news of a Zoom bun fight. You may or may not know that I am involved in other podcasts. One of these is called The Things That Made England. This is a collaboration of international glittering stars. And when I say glittering, I mean they glitter. Royfield Brown, Fiona Siobhan Powell, Luke Baxter and me as well. We thought we should get people together for something of a bun fight or a sort of village fate on Zoom. So on Saturday the 16th of January 2021, 6pm UK time, why not come along to hear me being interviewed to have a group quiz and so that you can ask as many searching questions as you see fit. It is, of course, utterly free. And to find out more, go to thehistoryofengland.co.uk forward slash bunfightfate. OK, so that's 16th of January, 6pm GMT. Pop it in your diary so you can remember to go down the pub instead, lockdown permitting. And finally, in the line of recommending fellow podcasters, here is a podcast on which you might want to pick up. Hello, I'm Fry. And I'm Brie from Pontifax, a papal history podcast ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. In each episode, we explore the life of a single pope and contextualize their papacy in world history. 
And then we rate them based on the success of their papacy, how scandalous they were, their impact on the secular world, what their face looked like, and more. They may even pick up a new patron sainthood on the way. In the end, our most impactful papal bull-worthy popes will battle it out for the keys to the pearly gates and to be the popiest pope who ever poped. You can find Pontifex at pontifex.podbean.com or wherever you find your podcasts. And on the Agora Podcast Network. If you didn't catch all of that, I put links on the post for this episode on the website, thehistoryofengland.co.uk. Okay, so it's been a long time since we've been firmly in Blighty as far as Elizabeth and her court and politics are concerned. We've been to Africa, the Caribbean, and all sorts. But now, we're back to the knitting, as it were. Time, maybe, then, for a bit of a summary of where we are. We have just heard how the thermostat of religious conflict had been turned up in 1570 by the papal bull Regnans in Excelsis that urged Elizabeth's subjects to kill her as a heretic. And in 1572, the evidence of where Catholic attitudes towards Protestants could lead with the slaughter of St. Bartholomew's Day. This, all on top of the 1567 Council of Troubles in the Netherlands and the 1,000 executions visited on Protestants. The 1570s and 1580s in particular will be the story of how these international conflicts work on England's domestic policy, leads to the persecution of Catholic communities, to war, and the creation of tightly held national stories. The point of all of this is that it is essential to understand the complex and dangerous world around Elizabeth and her English councillors in the last quarter of the 16th century to understand domestic politics. Yes, the attitude of those councillors also has a significant influence on policy, in particular in the form of three men, Burley, Walsingham and Leicester. It's difficult to express this quite clearly enough. Here are men, very close to the Queen, who see the world in black and white absolutes. I was thinking about this the other day and reflecting that, sadly, I am perfectly capable of telling a pal, in a jovial way of course, that they are the Antichrist. Not done it recently, you understand, but I can imagine it, because clearly, of course, they're not. So, all this stuff about the Pope being called the Antichrist from Cranmer onwards, I have subconsciously downgraded to a sort of casual pub-level insult. But it occurred to me, back then, it really wasn't that at all. I mean, clearly it's insulting. But the godly, the likes of Burley, Walsingham, Leicester among them, believed that the Pope really was the Antichrist, and his church was there to deliver the English and any others to the devil in eternity. And vice versa, of course, on the Catholic side, in their attitude towards Protestants, of course. So I don't know why this hit me quite so hard, but it's hard to shake off your 21st century assumptions sometimes. All this stuff, as we've said a hundred times before, really, really matters. The point I'm making is to remember that many of the English councillors saw the world in binary terms in religious senses, and events internationally did nothing to reassure them otherwise. And in the person of Mary and Scotland, those concerns were either at home or just next to home. In addition, by the end of the 1570s, the personnel around Elizabeth was changing. 
So, there is some debate about the impact of religion on England's foreign policy priorities, namely the received wisdom that Elizabeth was no religious zealot, which is probably true, and had a foreign policy that was dynastic, not religious. In some ways, as we discussed a few episodes away, the question is academic. Protestant nations were more likely to get English support than Catholic ones because they were more likely to be sympathetic to her causes. But whether Elizabeth saw England as a Protestant champion or not, many around her most certainly wanted her to do so. England's priorities then were massively complicated, and it is important to bear in mind that war with Spain was not at this point inevitable, not really until the 1580s. Now, there were enormous provocations for either side, it must be. But France remained Philip's primary worry, England being a small, damp island and all of that. But there were other pressures against war as well. Central to that was the attitude of the Duke of Alba, Philip's governor of the Netherlands, supreme in the Low Countries, but also he'd been in England during the 1550s and still held a network of contacts and agents there. He was even more influential than he would normally be because Philip now had no other channel of communication since he'd expelled the English ambassador as a heretic Protestant and admittedly Mr Mann the ambassador concerned was a rather abrasive one at that and probably deserved to be chucked out. Now the Duke of Alba recognised that the prosperity of the Low Countries was dependent on trade with England and he fiercely opposed anything that would endanger that. So in 1569, Philip asked Alba for his best advice on how to conquer England. But Alba fiercely opposed any action on the basis of the importance of not disrupting trade. So Philip therefore turned to the Ridolfi plot, trying to replace Elizabeth with Mary, Queen of Scots. The episode showed two things, that however conciliatory Philip's words and how strong his fear of France were, he wanted to conquer England from a very early stage, or at least have a ruler on the English throne that would convert the heretics back to the true church. And that nonetheless, the forces against war, though, still remained strong enough to hold him in check. English diplomacy then relied on six rather overlapping and complex priorities, according at least to John Guy. Firstly, number one, following the decade of the 1560s and events at Le Havre and the costs of war, England would not willingly intervene in the Netherlands with boots on the ground. Secondly, volunteers, however, would be allowed to go there to fight, which kind of helped sort of square the circle of strong popular support for the Dutch versus the reluctance to send an army. Meanwhile, thirdly, a defensive alliance with France would help protect England against Spanish aggression. But four, while France might be encouraged to help the Dutch revolt, they could under no circumstances be allowed to control it. And that five, the Entente with France, must therefore not allow France to extend their influence in Scotland either. And that, my friends, is a diplomatic tightrope that would have had Philippe Petit hiding his eyes in horror. Finally, Spain must be persuaded to return the Low Countries to the kind of semi-autonomy that they'd held before. Now, achieving all of these was, of course, extraordinarily tricky. 
I believe I have told you before of the Sea Beggars. Just to remind you, the Sea Beggars was a military force of up to 85 Dutch ships in rebellion against Spain. Their name came from the famous occasion in 1566 when the then Spanish governor had contemptuously turned away a delegation of nobles asserting their rights with the phrase that they were nothing but beggars. The Sea Beggars were part of the Protestant Pirate Alliance of Huguenot English Scots, based in La Rochelle, raiding in the Narrow Seas and selling their ill-gotten gains in English ports, where they could also take refuge and refit. But the pressure to stop all this on Elizabeth was immense. Allowing the Sea Beggars to use English ports to carry war against Spain might, mm, just possibly, maybe, perhaps, be seen as unfriendly. So, in 1572, she closed English ports to the Sea Beggars while trying to open trade again with Spain. Spanish eyes, however, were not smiling for long. The Sea Beggars launched a surprise attack and captured the Dutch seaport of Brill. And suddenly, the Netherlands were on fire once more, multiple towns declaring independence from Spain and control of the Iron Duke, Alba, challenged once again. With fairly horrific consequences, it must be said. In October, Mechelen surrendered, but was subjected to the fury of the Spanish, reputedly 2,000 killed, followed by another massacre in November at Zutpen. At which point, rebellious cities began opening their doors to the Spaniards as quickly as they could draw the bolts, but the rebellion survived nonetheless. Elizabeth's policy to avoid provoking the Spanish had paid off in a rather grisly way with rather dramatic dividends. Rather than destroying William of Orange's chances by banning the sea beggars, she had helped to ignite yet more trouble for Philip and look blameless into the bargain. Often the War of Dutch Independence is thought to have started from this date, as it happens, but it's worth noting that William of Orange in 1572 had not yet abandoned the idea of negotiating a peace with his liege lord, Philip II of Spain. In the Low Countries then, the situation was complex, with traditional loyalties, religious differences, and a difference in opinion between those seeking now to separate and seek full independence, and those still looking for an accommodation with their imperial prince. In France, the situation in a way was even more complex, with three broad attitudes. The Catholics, with leadership at court from the Guise. The Huguenots, recently battered but not beaten by St Bartholomew's Day, led by Henry of Navarre. And then a third group at court, the Politique. Those who felt that religion should play no part in politics whatsoever, and that loyalty to the crown was all. Each of these groups had an interest in intervening in the Low Countries, from religious reasons to dynastic ones. The Treaty of Blois with England rather encapsulated these sensitivities. As a defensive alliance, it sought to protect France from Spanish aggression. From an English perspective, it sought not to encourage French intervention in the Low Countries too far. But as French royal policy switched to and fro between the three camps of Catholic, Huguenot and Politique, it was extraordinarily hard to understand what French policy was that day and what it might be tomorrow. 
to help manage these incredibly sensitive priorities, with the French relationship, Elizabeth remained in possession of a great asset, the prospect of mariage. Now, to be sure, in 1572, this was a declining asset. Elizabeth was now 39, very late for marriage in those days. But the card, although well-thumbed, had a few more years to run before its sell-by date was reached. And then the French advanced the claims of one of Henry II's sons, Francis of Alençon, soon to become the Duc d'Anjou on the death of his brother, but not yet. Actually, the Anjou-Alençon thing is really, really confusing. I do wish for the billionth time everyone would stop changing their titles. Anyway, Alençon, soon to be Anjou, was just 16, so a bit difficult for Elizabeth to take seriously, to be honest. But actually, the French began to push the idea. Obviously, one of the torturous problems was that Francis was a Catholic. But for Burley and Leicester, on this issue, on the same camp, it looked like rather a good idea, although Catholic Francis seemed sympathetic to the Huguenot, and it might be a way to deliver French aid to William of Orange without the whole authority of the French state being behind it, just a Protestant campaign, as it were. Elizabeth did what she was rather wont to do, and she dithered. She didn't really want to marry Alençon, but on the other hand, wanted to keep France sweet. Meanwhile, the Privy Council was also split. While Burley and Leicester were keen, Francis Knowles and Walter Mildmay were agin it, hating the idea of the personal religious concessions that would need to be given to Francis if he was to be married and live in England. Well, St. Bart's threw all of that out of the water for a while, but then in 1573 the French put feelers out again, and Elizabeth, though clearly still not keen, played along politely. Interestingly, Catherine de' Medici, the French Queen Mum, firmly believed that Elizabeth was a woman ruled solely by her passions, and was therefore disposed to be rather contemptuous of her. So she thought there was a good chance that Elizabeth would just give way, desperate to leap into bed with her handsome son for a bit of nookie and damn the future of Europe. She was later to recognise that her judgement was seriously at fault. Anyway, in the torturous process of negotiation, the political situation changed. Edinburgh fell to Scottish Protestants. The King of France made peace with the Huguenots, raising a siege of La Rochelle. Elizabeth managed to persuade Spain to raise a trade embargo between the Low Countries and England, so everything eased, and the driving need for a French-English entente faded somewhat. The idea kept popping up, though, and was given new leases of life in 1575, with a rather remarkable offer from the Protestant rebels in the Low Countries. Because in the summer of 1575, the talks between Orange and Philip II failed. And now at last, William of Orange became convinced that it was independence or bust. To be more accurate, the provincial estates of the northern provinces, Holland and Zealand, became convinced, and together they came up with three possible new rulers. The Holy Roman Emperor Maximilian, the French King, who is now Henry III, or Elizabeth I of England. The first two were rejected, as on the one hand not very being very pro-rebel, on the other being beset by religious war in France, and so Elizabeth I of England was made an offer, 
to become ruler of the northern provinces. Interesting to note that the Dutch Republic was not formed in the spirit of republicanism at all. They'd offer the throne to Elizabeth again in 1585, but it ended up in the place of republicanism Fort de Meur. By which, of course, you'll guess that Elizabeth turned the offer down. Well, I hear you say, what about that then? Surely no one turns down a throne. And think of the potential for a Protestant superstate. But Elizabeth was always realistic and cautious. Accepting the offer would essentially be a declaration of war against Spain, and Elizabeth had few illusions about her chance of winning that one. And so it was a no. And then in 1576, Alençon himself proposed a solution to the French civil wars, which would be called the Pacification of Monsieur, that being Alençon's formal title at the time, Monsieur, don't ask me why. The idea, bringing peace to a Paris now besieged by the Huguenots. Well, golly. On the English Council, this time, Knowles and Leicester wanted to back this move by Monsieur, while Sussex and Burley still pursued the marriage, but more evidence, incidentally, of the flexible nature of political relationships on the council. But when the pacification was agreed, giving the Huguenot limited toleration, the marriage idea once again withered away, leaving no gain except a new respect from Catherine de' Medici for Elizabeth, recognising that she had been played in the diplomatic negotiations by a professional rather than passion's slave, the phrase she used about Elizabeth. However, the complications really don't go away, and I'm sorry for that, but look, it's history, it's complicated. The southern states in the Low Countries, more Catholic and more amenable to Spanish rule, were outraged that very year by a collapse in Spanish control over their army. The governor died, the Spanish army went into one of their regular pay-freeze periods, by which I mean they were completely frozen out of any pay because there was no money to pay them. And so, they took their traditional recourse and helped themselves, and sacked a city, in this case, Antwerp. This was the Spanish Fury, as it became known, during which it is estimated that 17,000 people of Antwerp were killed. In fact, the slaughter at Antwerp was just one example of similar events that happened all over Brabant. Once again, then, the revolt spread as Catholic nobles joined the revolt in 1577. And to whom did they appeal for help? Well, to Elizabeth I, of course, but mainly to our Francis of Alençon, soon to be Anjou. Well, actually, it's more simple now. He's turned into just Anjou now, so we can talk with the relief of Francis, Duke of Anjou. Now, Elizabeth didn't want this. The idea of Anjou swanning around as king of the Low Countries, spreading French influence and who knows, French annexation at some point, just as had happened with Brittany, well, that wasn't attractive one little bit. And so the Elizabeth stone was squeezed and £20,000 worth of blood came out as a subsidy to the Dutch rebels and the promise of soldiers to follow, although these never materialised since the Spanish immediately won a rather convincing victory in the field that made it a bit undesirable. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So now we're back in 1578, and I hope you can see just how complicated the decision-making process is. The situation in Northwest Europe is incredibly fluid, a constantly changing picture. In this light, Elizabeth's famous prevarication and caution made enormous sense, and more sense than maybe those of her councillors and parliament demanding firm, clear-cut decisions. Mary, clarify the succession. Execute Mary, Queen of Scots. Support the Protestant cause internationally, unreservedly. Elizabeth was playing for space, for survival steering between Scylla and Charybdis. And in this situation, coming down firmly on one side or t'other meant potential disaster. Whether at the hands of the military superpower of Spain or financial ruin and overstretched resources or the destruction of the Protestant cause. Without doubt, the Protestant zealots, of which Leicester might be described as one, were disappointed at the lukewarm nature of Elizabeth's support for the Dutch rebels. This could be Elizabeth's less-than-puritanical religious views, but more likely, her priority was security, not religion. But nor was she attracted by the conquest and the kind of imperialistic dynastic ambitions that drove her father. Could Henry VIII have turned down the offer of a crown? I rather doubt it. It's interesting also that Burley, Protestant zealot undoubtedly, was however much more cautious. But at this time, was advocating greater support for the rebels than he had been. Okay, so in 1578, Anjou suddenly went from being friendly or irrelevant to being the potential carrier of the disease of French imperialism into that crucial part of Europe of English trade and religious affiliation, the Low Countries. As a solution, the Earl of Sussex came up with the idea of playing the matrimonial card once more and Elizabeth gave him permission to approach the French. As a little wrinkle, actually, this came as a big surprise to Burley, who knew nothing about the idea. And this is rather interesting. Elizabeth and Burley were very close indeed. But almost never did Elizabeth allow herself to be ruled by her councillors or lose the political initiative, a point we'll come back to at some future episode. There might have been another reason for Elizabeth's sudden passion for a marriage with Anjou. Now you might note, in that regard, that we have not talked about the most celebrated love affair between Elizabeth and Robert Dudley, Earl of Leicester, for some time. Well, after the death of Amy Dudley, and all the suspicions around that, the hindsight view is that the idea of a Dudley-Elizabeth hookup was probably dead in the narthex from that point. Dudders didn't see it that way at the time, though, and the relationship remained very close between the two of them. Not, however, that this stopped Dudders pursuing other romantic avenues. Oh dear me, no. Hands up, then. Who knew that Douglas could be a woman's name? Not me, but apparently it could be in the 16th to 18th centuries, so there's a thing. Anyway, Douglas Howard the daughter of William Howard of Effingham and Margaret, his wife, was born around 1542, 
and she was the sister of Charles, the Armada, Howard of Effingham. In early 1568, when her husband Sheffield died, leaving her with two children, she took up a post as a gentlewoman of the Queen's Privy Chamber. There, in the 1570s, she and Dudders started an affair, which would lead to an illegitimate Robert Dudley. Interestingly, in an updated letter presumed to be written by Dudley to Douglas, Dudders explains why he can never marry her, because, if I should marry, I am sure never to have the Queen's favour, which is, you know, honest, if a little brutal. This affair was common knowledge to most at court, possibly with the exception of the Queen, and much rumour surrounded it. It was rumoured that Lester poisoned Douglas's husband, almost certainly untrue, and much later, Douglas would claim that she and Lester had actually been married in a court case that she later brought to establish her son's legitimacy, though, oopsie, all her marriage documents had been stolen, which didn't help her case. Frankly, I'm in the throes of court gossip here, but you know, it's high-grade gossip girl stuff. Let me then introduce you to Lettuce Knowles. Lettuce was one of the offspring of the union between Catherine Knowles, a descendant of the Berlin family, and Francis Knowles, one of the most influential of Elizabeth's privy councillors. Lettuce was one of 16 offspring. Yep, that was in fact 16 offspring. And she was born in 1543. If you follow the Facebook site, you will have seen the really rather remarkable memorial in the otherwise quite unremarkable church of Rotherfield Greys. Because the Knowles lived in my hood. They lived at the village called Rotherfield Greys. There is still a house there, though not very grand. And the gardens, though, are very lovely. Anyway, when Francis Knowles became vice-chamberlain, Catherine became one of the four ladies of the Queen's Privy Chamber, and at the tender age of 16, she became a gentlewoman of the Privy Chamber too. Before you could say matrimonial prospects, Lettuce was married to Walter Deverer, and soon she produced two children, one of whom will be Robert Deverer, a future royal favourite. But despite withdrawing to their estates, Lettuce seems to have been still at court on occasion, or at least a scurrilous rumour circulated that Robert Dudley, Earl of Leicester, was paying court to her to try and turn the head of the Queen back in his direction. Devereux went to Ireland in 1572 on an ill-fated Irish plantation scheme. And here's gossip again around the goings-on at court. Lettuce was rather good-looking by all accounts, and certainly she and Lester got it on at some point. Before or after, Devereux died on the 21st of September, 1576. The gossip has it that Lester had Devereux murdered, or maybe kept him in Ireland by court intrigue. Both seems a little bit unlikely, but the affair seems very likely, and the gossip would also have it that there were children on the wrong side of the bed. While the dastardly Dudley kept probably two affairs of the heart in the air, he was by the summer of 1575 as yet unreconciled to the prospect of not being Mr King. So, in the summer of 1575, he decided to spin the wheel just one more time and he threw a party of mega proportions for his queen at his magnificent estate at Kenilworth. Reputedly, 
spruced up for the occasion with £60,000 worth of improvements. Dudley smashed the piggy bank and pushed the boat firmly out and laid on a knees-up to end all knees-ups. Rarely, it may be said, have knees been so high. On the 9th of July, Elizabeth arrived at Kenilworth for three weeks of knee-raising fun, welcomed on her palfrey with the sound of guns fired in salute. Through the outer courtyard and tiltyard she went, and into the inner courtyard, to be greeted by actors reciting fine speeches, and being presented with precious gifts, and then off to her suite of chambers. The following three weeks were filled with music, masks, dancing and tilting, acrobatic displays, with hunting of course, and sadly, bear baiting. There were elaborate banquets which saw the guests sink up to 40 barrels of beer and 16 barrels of wine in one day. Come darkness, the evening sky was lit by firework displays. In the words of the French ambassador, nothing more magnificent had been seen in England for a long while. Not necessarily a compliment from the French ambassador, it should be noted. Dudley was at the same time making a more obvious bid for his Queen's hand. He unveiled two fabulous portraits of himself and the Queen, and therefore quite clearly presenting them as a possible couple. As Elizabeth left, it's reported his leaving speech included a broad hint on the idea of putting a ring on it theme. Vouch save, O comely Queen, yet longer to rename or to dwell that dwell amongst us here. O Queen, command again this castle and the night, which keeps the same for you. Live here, good Queen, live here. However, the speech was delivered early, because the Queen left early. Maybe not pointedly so, who knows. Maybe if you remembered, she'd left the gas on, or something like that. But it was enough to make the point. This was the final rejection. Lester would now give up on his own hopes of a royal marriage, as in all likelihood Elizabeth had done so some time ago. Neither of them would give it up each other's friendship, though. However, the path of true friendship did not run smoothly, because two years to the day after the death of Lettice Knowles' first husband, Sheffield, Lester and Lettice were secretly married, far from the eyes of court. The eyes of the court, however, were not fooled for one moment. And nor eventually were the eyes of the Queen. When she discovered what had happened, she went potty, and the eyes of the Queen were full of jealous rage. She boxed Lettuce's ears and screamed that, As but one sun lighteth the earth, she would have but one Queen of England. The flouting wench, as the Queen called Lettuce, was banished from her presence. Lettuce went on to remarry when Leicester died, and in a court case of 1604, the words of Robert Cecil giving judgment reflect that her reputation with most people didn't suffer terribly for the incident, or that her life later commanded respect at least. So Cecil much commended the Countess of Leicester, how well she lived with him, that's Leicester, all his time notwithstanding his humours how for her marriage with him she was long disgraced with the Queen. And certainly 
The Queen never forgave Lettuce, and her opinion was bitter and unending against her. It may simply be that Lettuce had taken the love of Elizabeth's life away, and it may also be that Elizabeth suspected Lettuce of deliberately scheming to do so and setting her cap at her paramour. But you know, if you're going to set your cap, you might as well do it at the right guy. Anyway, I got onto this because in 1578, Elizabeth suddenly seemed turned on again to the idea of marriage to the Duke of Alençon. The timing of her discovery about Lettuce is not clear, so it may have been the affair with Douglas that helped give her the push, though honestly, I'm not sure we need any personal reasons. Elizabeth was clever and hard enough to recognise that the French needed distracting from the Dutch revolt. It was late in Elizabeth's life, of course. She was 45, and councillors like Mildmay and Walsingham were therefore against the match with Anjou, not just because Anjou was Catholic, but because it was now almost a racing certainty that the match would be childless. And if she died, Anjou, much younger than she, would be the heir. Elizabeth, though, and Anjou, it seems, were keen. The fuss was quite remarkable. Diplomatically speaking, the debates that extended from 1578 to 1581 were utterly torturous about the rights Anjou would have as king, how he'd have to conduct himself politically and religiously, all controls that wormed their way dramatically and definitively up the French nasal passage and wriggled around like a good'un. The negotiations were aimed not just at the French, of course. One eye was turned towards Spain, with talk of possible greater toleration for Catholics to keep the Spanish as sweet as possible. To be fair, Philip wasn't fooled one moment. His ambassador bluntly informed the Queen that English intervention in the Netherlands or Portugal would mean war, whomsoever she married. Meanwhile, the urgency of the diplomatic situation was enhanced by the formation, in 1576, of the Catholic League by the Guise, determined to eradicate Protestantism wherever she flourished and supported by the Pope and Philip II. The English, however, were universally livid at the idea of marriage to a French Catholic, would you believe, and virulently so. Now, court poets like Spencer and Sidney wrote clever appeals to the Queen's vanity, an exercise in how criticism can be delivered as compliment, such as, you don't sweat much for a fat lass, that sort of thing. Elizabeth, however, wasn't fooled for a moment, and actually it's from this period that the cult of the Virgin Queen began to be used. But other criticism was delivered with rather less skill, notably in popular broadsheets and ballads complaining about the marriage. One John Stubbs wrote a piece entitled Discovery of a Gaping Gulf, wherein England is like to be swallowed, which really ticked the Queen off especially when the piece suggested that she was being led helplessly and blindly into the slavery of the French. At this we meet again Elizabeth's stubborn and imperious streak. No matter who was saying it, Privy Councillor, Parliament or her people, Elizabeth would not have anyone telling her what to do about what she felt was her personal matter and nobody else's, her marriage. Her response to poor old Stubbs and another similar author, William Page, was savage. Both of them lost their right hands. 
Elizabeth may not have had quite her father's savagery, but she was without doubt her father's daughter. Negotiations went on back and forth, and attitudes waxed and waned, as Spanish fortunes in the Netherlands went through flood and ebb. By October 1581, it appeared that, really, things had moved on from marriage to the prospect of an Anglo-French treaty over Flanders rather than a marriage treaty, and Anjou came over to England to negotiate the terms of said treaty. His visit was accompanied by great celebrations and events, of course, and there appears to have been real affection between the two of them. Elizabeth called him her frog, and to the untutored ear that might seem a little rude. But Elizabeth often did this sort of thing as a term of endearment, calling Leicester her eyes, and Christopher Hatton lids, and so on. So it's probably affectionate. The story goes that Anjou was a particularly energetic dancer at a time when dancing involved a lot of hopping about, hence the term frog. Which brawls me into a digression. The theory also goes that this is why the English call the French frogs. I hate to say this opinion is not conclusive, and there are other theories. One being English culinary horror that the French would eat frogs' legs, as opposed to good, honest lard, tripe and Yorkshire puddings. But then, since we don't call the Belgians les frites, or the Norwegians the roll mops, or the Dutch the herrings, the theory seems a bit unlikely. A further theory is that we are simply copying the French of the 18th century who called Parisians les grenouilles, or frogs. Who knows? Who can tell? Anyone for the last few chocaises now. Nonetheless, as I say, by the time Anjou's visit was coming to an end, it seemed that the prospect of marriage had passed. Once the agreement to support Anjou's intervention in the Low Countries on decent terms and levels of ambition with agreement to prevent permanent French hegemony had been achieved. But then, dramatically and a little outrageously, Elizabeth set the court buzzing when she drew Anjou to one side, talking words of love, and gave him a big one on the kisser, giving him a ring from her finger to boot. Well, hoody elbow. There was outrage and confusion. It looked as though there was a mutual agreement between them. By heck! The Privy Councillors were gutted. Elizabeth's night was passed all that night without sleep amongst her household, her household servants, who made a great consort of weeping and sighing. Now this seems very uncalculating and very un-Elizabeth-like. And before the kissed frog could turn into a prince of the Netherlands, Elizabeth had recanted, taking Anjou aside again for a serious talk, a serious tete-a-tete. After which it was reported that Anjou returned to his chamber and plucketh off the ring, casteth it on the ground, taketh it up again, raileth on the lightness of women and the inconstancy of islanders. There has been much debate about the relationship with Anjou. On the one hand, it has been presented as classic Elizabeth, all the theatre to distract the French and the Spanish from their more dangerous designs. If so, it was only moderately successful, as we've seen Philip wasn't fooled one bit, and when Anjou finally left in 1582, he had the relationships and agreements with the war party in England that he wanted, with councillors like Leicester, for example. Other historians have argued that Elizabeth was genuinely interested in Anjou, despite the 20-year age difference between them. 
Either of the interpretations seem to have evidence to support them, and I am moved to say that the two things don't seem entirely mutually exclusive, in fact. What's certain, though, is that this is the end of the debate about marriage to distract the body politic or the body biological. From here on in, the iconography of the Virgin Queen takes over. There were plenty of other things to disturb the body politic, of course, and we need to get back to the workings of the Privy Council and that good old hardy perennial, what are we going to do about Maria? But there were other thoroughly thrilling things too going on, namely all that opening up of the world, not to mention plunder and the glory of seemingly impossible voyages and the lives of the most outrageous Elizabethan adventurers. So let us turn to that for the next few weeks, starting with the doings of one of the immortals of English memory, Sir Francis Drake. But fear not, neither will we ignore the Gilberts, Frobishers and Raleighs of this world. And that'll all start in a couple of weeks, on the 10th of January. Do not forget then the Bunfight Fate on the 16th of January, 6pm UK time, and hi thee to the website thehistoryofengland.co.uk to find out more. Until then, this is the last podcast of 2020, and soon old father time will rid us of a troublesome year, possibly, and indeed hopefully, by whacking a ruddy great big sword through its cranium to make sure it's gone for good. Fare thee well, 2020. Have a good one. To all of you listeners, thank you so much for listening, and for all your comments and especially lovely reviews on Facebook or iTunes. Have a fab New Year celebration, and see you all next year. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 